Hello, and welcome to the all-new Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles, literary director here at the bookshop. If you enjoy these conversations and would like to spend even more of 2022 at Kilometre Zero in Paris, you can now subscribe for just three euros a month. For that, you'll get regular bonus episodes, hand-picked classic interviews from our archives, as well as early access to complete chapters from friends of Shakespeare and Company, Read Ulysses. You can now sign up directly in Apple Podcasts or for users of all other podcast apps through Patreon. Links to both are available in the show notes. All money raised through these subscriptions goes to supporting Friends of Shakespeare and Company, the bookshop's non-profit, created to fund our non-commercial activities, from the Upstairs Reading Library to the Writers in Residence programme to our charitable collaborations and our free events. We're very grateful for your support. Today's guest is Stephen May, whose fifth novel, Sell Us the Rope, is a fictional retelling of events surrounding the Fifth Congress of the Russian Social Democratic Labour Party, which took place in London in 1907. We spend most of our time following Koba, as the young man who would become Stalin was then known, as he arrives in a poverty-riddled city and plunges into the heart of -of turn-of-the-century revolutionary politics. There's factionalism and arguments and strategizing and backstabbing and money-grubbing, as well as the constant shadowy presence of the Okhrana, Russia's overactive secret police force. There are also appearances by some of the defining personalities of the 20th century, Lenin, Trotsky, Gorky, and Rosa Luxemburg among them, long before they left their indelible marks on modern history. But what Stephen May also portrays so well is this gaggle of young, sexually charged, idealistic, but flawed human beings who felt the world was on a tipping point and that it was for them to help it over the edge. Fraught conditions that proved ripe for adventure and intrigue and betrayal, but also for the forging of alliances, of friendships, and sometimes even love. Stephen May, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Oh, thanks for having me, and thanks for that introduction. It was great. Um, Yeah, and you've clearly read the book, which... uh, (laughs) I mean, it's only polite, right? (laughs) (laughs) You'd be surprised, though. (laughs) But no, that's great. Yeah, and sums up very well. Um, so let's let's talk about the the seed of this book because I mean when I when I was writing the introduction I must admit when I wrote sort of like you know of events surrounding the fifth congress of the Russian Social Democratic Labour Party which like when you just say it like that it, our listeners might think immediately oh that doesn't sound like super compelling but as soon as you find out about this story and the uh, this congress and the characters involved and what London was like at the time it suddenly becomes a really sort of fascinating subject matter. So would you just be able to talk a little bit about how you first kind of came across this subject and then particularly when you decided it would make kind of great material for a novel? Well, I mean, you're, you're right about it. It, it, it. To most people not seeming immediately compelling, although it did it did to me. I remember my because my, this is my sixth book, uh, Adam, and the, and the Previous five have all been very contemporary. You know, if you wanted to boil them down, it's like Steve looks at the world and thinks, well, this is a bit mad. It's a bit, <laughs> and this was very, very different from, from that. Um, and, w- and when I spoke to my publishers about this book, um, they, they, um, I remember the editor saying, well, but, but why? Why are these people interesting? And I'm thinking, it's young Stalin in mm-hmm. Edwardian London. Of course it's going to yeah, be yeah. Uh, com- compelling. And I think it's partly that, uh, the the Stalin at twenty nine was very different from from the, from the Stalin we you know so he's twenty nine he's an ex poet he's the guy um, organizing the bank robberies he's the uh, um, he's the only sort of genuinely proletarian one amongst the mm-hmm. you know amongst his peer group he you know he's a he's an outsider and we get him at this interesting moment 
um, in history and we get in, in London. And I think it's, it's hard for me now to remember how I first came across this story. I suspect it was a kind of Wikipedia rabbit hole because that's mm. what I find myself doing a lot in a very <laughs> modern way. And, and, and at first I was just reading for my own interest within, with, with sort of gathering kind of excitement. And then I started reading, you know, Young Stalin, um, the mm. Simon Montefiore book, and, and and he sort of covers that 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 whole conference in about two paragraphs, certainly no right. more than a couple of pages. And I was thinking, oh my god, no one seems to have done this. Kept reading around. There was a lot written about it in the the local press. I'm a member of the you know the British newspaper archive is uh, you know is fascinating, and they had mm. written about it a lot. And then. I discovered what was what was the thing that tipped me over the edge into writing it was I I, I read uh, came across and then read this 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 out of print um, biography um, of um, Stalin this Russian book where it's got it's called Stalin's Secret File where he put forward mm. the the idea um, this writer is convinced that of the truth of this that uh, that Stalin was a spy for the Tsar and as soon right. as I had that I was just like well. You know, let's let's not leave that as of, you know, he might have been as. A, let's just imagine that's true, and let's just, you know, uh, and once we've got that as the animating impulse of the story, mm. then you know, then it then it then it starts to take on a kind of motor and a propulsion of it of its of of, of its own really. And then you start reading about some of the other activists. You start finding out, um, you know, that the the party really did run out of money and that they had to borrow money from a, an American soap billionaire. You start finding <laughs> out about the young, uh, the girl nihilists, as they were told at the time, who, you know, who did the judo training every morning with Mrs. Gerard, um, who later <laughs> taught the suffragettes judo. And you start thinking, well, this is just, you know, this is this is sort of going to write itself. Didn't write itself, but right. you know, <laughs> more of a struggle than that. But um, but you know there's enough material, and also I think key for me in switching from uh, into having to do some research and switching from from writing contemporary books was it was a very clearly defined time frame. They were here for yeah. three weeks. Um, Stalin here a little bit longer because uh, his mate got ill, and uh, Stalin had to stay and nursemaid him. But you know, so it was only but it was only a matter of weeks. And mm -hmm. I thought if I'd stick very much to that time frame, it was going to be manageable. It could be a short book. It didn't have to be you know, an epic tone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I wonder, um, I mean, perhaps the answer to this question is because I'm a novelist, but I'm curious about the decision to write a novel about it in that case. Like what what was the, the what was it about the story that made you think, okay, so you weren't going to write, for example, a short history book about this particular time, but that it had to it had to be a novel. Well, you know, I'm I, I suspect I'm 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 too lazy and not rigorous enough to do like loads of proper research so that's, <laughs> that's that, that that's one thing and I, and also thought just as um science fiction writers are often really writing about the present well so mm. are historical writers and it was i did think well this is going to be slightly a vehicle to talk about things that you know that i in a different way that we're all getting bored of talking about but still need talking about mm. so brexit for example and um the attitudes of english to foreigners uh you know the the um, the impact of ideology on everyday life. You know social conditions, mm -hmm. all of that kind of thing. And um, and the thing for me, just the the element of surprise. So you you could mm -hmm. you know when you're writing a novel, as you'll know yourself, you can surprise yourself, kind of thing. And you can right. take yeah, yeah. And, and you know and the and the past is a sort of 
platform for leaping off. You don't want to be mm -hmm. caged in by it. Um, yeah. I think, you know, the characters were... Uh, there, was, there were characters that we, we know something about, um, and then there were characters that we only know a little bit about. So fleshing those out in a novelistic mm. kind of way was uh, was always going to be more fun than, than than trying to find. I don't know if you've ever read any uh, the biographies, sort of Soviet-sanctioned biographies of the of their of their leadership are very very dull. They're utterly uh -huh. uninterested in what people are really like. You know, like um, what makes them laugh, or uh, you know, even how tall they are, or whatever. They're they're very kind of. He was on this committee for seven years, and he was on this mm -hmm. committee, and it was at this they developed the plan to X. You know, so so. You actually sort of need to be a novelist in order to bring it properly alive, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it's definitely a case of sort of uh, from a reader's perspective that uh, you, you can go into it with the idea that, OK, not everything in here is going to be factually true, but it helps flesh out the the kind of the emotions and motivations, um, the, the sort of the spirit of the characters in a way that perhaps let's say uh, a historian would be too afraid to because you know they wouldn't necessarily have the the reference for this there's a kind Absolutely, of there's a kind yeah. of i guess emotional truth to it yeah and um, i definitely which... think that's true and novelists can be you know emotionally um mm -hmm. much more uh fearless the the the, the, mm -hmm. the stakes are lower for us aren't we? we're not you know like you know part of the job is to make stuff up um right. so we're not going to be crucified for, for for doing what the job is whereas if you're a historian yeah. then you're found to have made something up or even taken liberties then you know that's it can be game over so um i mean i did i did i, I wasn't going to but i did do a sort of end note about to, to try and sort of sort out some of the fact from 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 more mm. obvious fiction is um because i think a lot of people would assume stuff that I'd made up. Well, you know, they wouldn't realise how much was actually true. For me, right. when I was reading, it was the most unlikely stuff turned out to be true. Yeah. Like, like, like the fact that uh, Joseph Stalin strikes up this friendship with this thirteen-year-old son of the um, of his landlord. Well, that was true, mm. you know. And the, the 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 delegates doing judo was true. Um, the you know the, the the party where they're sort of trying to network in order to get. The, uh, the 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 soap billionaire to fund them. That's all true, and then you know, and and I, I didn't want to be in the position where people were saying, "Oh, well, that would never happen." When I yeah, knew yeah, that yeah. it had happened, so so I was much it's more old... to make up some of the some of the politics. To be honest, yeah, it's that old Mark Twain thing, right? About the difference between fact and fiction is that fiction has to make sense. Yes, yes, no, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about something you mentioned. This uh, idea about the kind of connection to uh, to sort of contemporary discussions and contemporary ideas, because this is this period about the kind of the turn of the twentieth century. Um, I find fascinating for that very reason, actually. Mm. And um, as as you know, and a lot of our listeners will know, we've been spending a lot of time with Ulysses over the past mm. sort of six to nine months. And so that was a book that takes place in uh, in 1904, so almost contemporaneously with um, with Sell Us the Rope. And one thing I noticed while reading and rereading Ulysses was just how many of the concerns of uh, the Dubliners in that case at this time were sort of almost directly transposable onto onto today. So whether that be the kind of the advance of technology, whether that be the um, the, the rise of mass media, um, as you mentioned, the kind of the sort of like the having to kind of pass between different 
uh, ideologies and having to sort of you know see the, the the implications of some of these taking root in in particular ways. Um, but I'm curious about the sort of how, as a writer, you sort of deal with both the sort of the similarities and the and the differences. Like when you were when you were doing your research, was there sort of was it hard sometimes to navigate between sort of something which you you really wanted to draw a parallel with uh, today, but also because of certain vast differences that have, you know, changed our societies in a hundred years that you had to kind of hold off a little bit for drawing, you know, too, too strong parallels. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Because some of the, some of the, some of the things are, some of the differences are, are, um, are hard for people to get their head around. So for example, the Mm. fact that that Britain didn't require any passports when you came in in 1907, anyone could come in. And actually though, uh, England was a, was, you know, was a, um, full of the same kind of prejudices that that, that England remains that, that still has. Um, it, it was also considered to be, you know, very welcoming at one level as well. Mm-hmm. There were waves of immigration into the East End, just as there are now. And um, and it, but it, I think it, it it was the similarities that were more striking because um, mm-hmm. people assume that. Now, for example, the, the East End then had loads of curry shops and curry houses. Mm-hmm. And, you know, right. people think that that's a relative, that's a post-war thing. But actually, you know, because of the empire and, you know, we were, we were uh, well used, used to that. Um, it, I'm trying to think of a, I mean, definitely, I mean, my, my main thing was to, was, was to write an interesting book with an interesting story with interesting characters that, that that was the that was the guiding light. You know, I wasn't mm. trying to write a character study of Joseph Stalin, though he was right. interesting enough. I wasn't trying to, and I was trying to bring some people that have been kind of unjustifiably forgotten a, a, a bit more to life. Um, but I wasn't. So I went where the fiction would lead me, I suppose, rather mm. than where the history led me. If if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I didn't want to, and and it's and it's. And it, it, you know, like uh, a bit like sort of a Tommy, a uh, pinball wizard in in Tommy. You sort of you're a little bit guided by your sense of smell, really. It's a little bit uh, instinct, you know. That yeah, that, you know, um, trying to stay the right side of the fact fiction line. I mean, I, mm-hmm. you know, um, fiction sort of respects nothing. Doesn't have to be tied down to any factual thing. But at the same time, I didn't want anything so jarring that a reader would mm-hmm. throw the book across the room, going, "Oh, that would never happen." Or yeah, think yeah, people yeah. Didn't think like that then. Um, I tend to think people are more similar. Even now, I think people are more similar than they are different. And I think the past mm. is more similar to the present than it is different, particularly when we are, you know, um, uh, you know, so relatively so close in time. I mean, I think the big yeah. thing, you know, the big thing is that we know the First World War is coming, coming along. We know the uh. Russian Revolution is coming along. We know that the, the, the Holocaust and everything is in the future. And mm. They can't even imagine it. So that was, you know, playing with that yeah, kind yeah. of irony, I suppose. Well, that was going to be my next question, actually, was about that sort of, um, sort of, I suppose, writing, and in our case, as readers, reading with the knowledge of what would what was to come. I know, because it's, because obviously, you know, the Stalin we meet, this 29-year-old ex-poet, kind of, kind of, you know, on the, on the skids a little bit, you know, he's not sort of, he doesn't have his position in the party particularly secured. He may or may not be a Russian spy. And yet, you know, we read it almost as readers with one eye on on this guy, <laughs> this guy as, as you're 
presenting him. And then one eye knowing that in less than two decades, he's going to, you know, have begun his uh, you know, control of the three decade reign of um, of the Soviet Union, a country which didn't even exist yeah. <laughs> at, uh, at this time. How was it for you sort of separating those two? Because obviously it's hard as a writer to sort of, you don't want to build in motivations based on things which have yet to happen, if you see what I mean. You yeah. have to have your eye sort of laser focused on this 29-year-old man, but with the burden of all this knowledge of what he's then going to do. Yeah, yeah. So I think you have to um, you have to be strict with yourself that he could only know what he knows and the characters mm-hmm. can only know what they, they were. They, none of them are clairvoyant. They can, they can make guesses in the way that political analysts make guesses, but they cannot know what's going to come. You know, and 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 um, and though I do have some fun with that, actually. Having said that, I do definitely <laughs> have, uh, have some bits where some characters are nodding sagely. At, uh, you know, like I mean, in fact, Stalin himself, I think, makes a prediction that the uh, the Tsar will make a mistake. He'll join some big war. He'll get beaten, and then mm-hmm. you know, so uh, um, so then Eddie's going, but that didn't happen last time. Oh no, but it will happen next time, and of course, it does yeah. happen next time. You know, so I. I I allowed myself to have a, have have a bit of fun with that, and sort of rewarded a smart reader. I suppose sometimes rewarded them for their their knowledge and insight, but other times, you know, mm-hmm. you know, misdirection is half the uh, mm-hmm. half the uh, thing as well. And they're not um, they're based on real people. They yeah, but they're it, what can I say? Because as, as a reader, I do. I also find that that sort of fascinating how real these people are and uh-huh. of course, you know you could say well they're not real at all but they are their shadowy real selves are also present so um mm-hmm. you know and, and i suppose that's writing this kind of book like uh um like hillary mantel does with cromwell i suppose that is one of the you know you have the license but because mm. you've got a license to kill if you like you have to use <laughs> it judiciously that is your yes. duty you know because you've been given the license so um and then, um, yeah, and then, 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 then follow your instinct. There is a, it, it, it's a weird and um, there's a sort of ghostly animation in a, in a, in a mm. way. Not, you know, it's not a higher power leading you, but there's a sort of, I suppose, your your judgment is a sort of unconscious level. If that makes sense. Sort of, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, completely. And it's sort of, it's that thing, like I I can, um, I mean, I've never, I don't think written a historical character in this way before, but like, I can imagine there must be a certain sort of um, tension in, in the writing process as well about, about sort of like, you know, something feeling right yeah. for the character that you're writing. And yet sort of like, you know, what, what I suppose trying to determine what your limits are, like how far you can uh, take things, as you say, to kind of prevent that sort of uh, readily throwing the book across the room. Yeah, yeah. And and, yeah, I I mean, I I, I don't want to sort of labour the point really, but it is, there is, there is, there is that tension there. That tension is also the joy of doing it as well. Mm, That's the fun of it, actually. And I did find that being tethered in some sense to a spine of real events. I couldn't step outside the time frame. I mean, obviously, you know, as well, the, the novel's in a kind of infinitely flexible form. You know, you can take mm. liberties with it. But I, of course. I, I, I didn't want to sort of step outside of 
of, of a sort of known timeline. Luckily, Stalin's presence at the conference was very shadowy. We don't really, mm -hmm. he seems to have kept his head down. Um, and that seems to have been his great strength in, as he rose through the party, actually, is that he was a grey man. He was underestimated, a bit like Putin, a grey man, underestimated, in the background, made a reputation as a kind of energetic organiser. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you could rely on him to, to get things done. You could rely on him to get to work early and to stay late kind of thing. Um, but no one took him really seriously as a leader until they were until it was too late really you mm -hmm. know that 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 sort of rising slightly without trace and certainly at this conference he was a shadowy backroom figure mm -hmm. as far as we know didn't really speak at all in in public which of course gives you quite a lot of leeway you know yeah yeah, yeah. There, but i can decide what he said and who he said it to the famous rose street club is based in one of the poorest districts of central london a place full of brothels and often the centre of outbreaks of cholera. In a few narrow streets round here, just yards from the theatres and hotels of the West End, are crammed half a million desperate souls. Originally the home of an education centre for immigrant workers, the club has grown to become a major venue for progressive thinking. Here you can meet radicals of all kinds from all corners of the earth, revolutionary socialists from the Russian Empire, yes, but also German anarchists, Irish nationalists, Indian nationalists, African nationalists, nationalists from everywhere, American suffragists and British free thinkers of all levels of militancy, from hand-wringing nonconformist preachers to actual bomb-throwing Republicans. It isn't only radicals that come here, of course. Artisans who can afford a few spare pennies are attracted by the promise of warm rooms, free newspapers and cheap beer. And in the fog-filled main room, a dozen or so Bolshevik men are trying to get two girls, Ellie and Nina, drunk. And they are not simply trying to intoxicate with booze either. Flattery is deployed. Ellie's speech gets many compliments, as well as an exaggerated courtesy and unusual attentiveness to female opinion. The men also deploy generosity. Happy to spend a hefty proportion of their two shillings a day, softening up the women's defences with cheap alcohol. Ellie refuses all offers of drinks with a smile. Nina, on the other hand, is happy to say yes, and she can match the best of them, drink for drink. There are jokes too, of course, heavy-handed, teasing, innuendo, banter. The women do much rolling of their eyes, a lot of sly smiling at each other. Oh, such peacocks, says Rosa Luxemburg. She is sitting on a low stool at a table on the other side of the room, squashed between Koba, Stalin, and Skarkaya, watching this jockeying and jostling around Ellie Vyuko and her friend. Peacocks! says Skarkaya, in a tone of surprise, for these men are for the most part dressed shabbily and unimpressively in drab suits. But Coba knows what she means. The men are parading the finery of their opinions, displaying the cut of their rhetoric, the skilful embroidery of the historical knowledge, the elegance of their learning, the bright, clean, expansive colours of their wit. She means our brothers are showing off with words, says Coba. He is too polite to add that Rosa's companion, Leo Georgis, is one of the peacocks hovering around the young women, half-heartedly wagging the tail feathers of his erudition. Not that he looks like he's enjoying it very much. More like jackals at a waterhole, sniffs Garkaya. Koba and Rosa exchange a look. They see how their comrade stares at the scene across the room, a gaze of such fierce puritanical scorn that it occurs to Koba that it masks lasciviousness. Is it envy that produces such an intense look 
Does Skarkaya the leopard wish that he was padding around these women, waiting for a chance to pounce? Does he wish that he could parade his knowledge of revolutionary history, show the sharp claws of his scholarship? Or maybe this leopard is mourning that his muscles, once taut, now simply ache. Is he feeling sorry that he's just too old for the kind of foolishness that goes on around the edges of a congress? Good to know that the middle-aged philosopher is capable of ordinary everyday vices. It's reassuring. I feel I should rescue the poor creatures, says Rosa, and she rises and begins to push her way through the conversations and the smoke. Those girls don't need rescuing, thinks Coba. Those girls know what they're doing. They know where they are. It's like offering to rescue happy seals from drowning, or maybe it's really Leo she's rescuing. Coba notes how pronounced Rosa's limp is becoming. It's worse than his own, and yet he feels no kinship, no fellow feeling, no sense that they are similarly damaged and so should stand together against mockery or pity. She annoys him, that's the truth. Her doctorate and her limp are both just ways of getting attention, of getting ahead. Next to him, Skarkaya sighs. Everything all right, comrade, says Koba. I was just thinking about how this place kept its name despite no longer being in Rose Street. And, unprompted, he explains how 12 years ago, in an attempt to shake off a reputation for vice, the road was renamed Manette Street, after a character in Charles Dickens's A Tale of Two Cities. And you will remember that Dr Manette spent many years as a prisoner in the Bastille prior to the revolution, so an apt location for socialists to meet, no? He pauses and takes a dainty sip at his vodka. Thing is, it hasn't really worked. A Rose Street by another name does not smell any sweeter. It is just possible, thinks Coba, that Mikhail Skarkaya is the most boring man alive. And a bad liar too. He was so obviously thinking about women rather than street names. He should just be honest about it. Let's get to our new lodgings, Coba says, and hope that they smell a little sweeter than the last cesspit. Followed discreetly by some of the toughest men of the party, can't be too careful round here, Rosa hurries Ellie and Nina back to Langton House. She'll get a hansom from there. As they walk, Rosa tells them to watch out for left-wing men. They can be as bad as any other men. Worse, because they say all the right things. It can be hard to spot the bad ones till it's too late. The younger women are polite. This is Rosa Luxemburg. But they don't need any warnings about socialist men. They know all about them. You know what I'd like to do, says Nina. I'd like to fuck a proper English milord, someone with a castle and hundreds of servants. I'd like to fuck him and then shoot him. Ellie laughs, but Rosa just looks thoughtful. I wish someone would fuck Leo and shoot him. Both events might do him some good. And it also makes you reflect on on the way history works, I guess, because there's, let's say, I guess the other sort of principal protagonist is um, this character, Ellie Vuoko. Yeah. who I will uh, I'll ask you to to introduce her in a minute but like one thing that you do say in your in your afterward is that like she was she made quite a stir at this conference and her speeches were reported I think it was in the daily mirror or something like that and so like it's interesting that like between her and Stalin at this um at this conference you know she is the one that maybe at the time you would think is going to make a mark on history and is going to be remembered and yet this is a name which is probably not going to be familiar to uh, most readers at the beginning of the book or most listeners to this podcast. And Stalin, who was, as you say, was barely a presence, went unnoticed, suddenly has becomes one of the sort of most significant figures of of, uh, of 20th century history. Yeah, and and, and that is, was one of the joys of doing doing this book. And 
Ellie Vuco is not. Look, there was a woman uh, who had that name. Who was an activist. Was a Red Army soldier during the Finnish Civil War, um, and 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 was murdered gruesomely in that in that in that Civil War. The there were young female delegates there, which the press, as you can imagine, were fascinated about it. it was because this mm. is all, all also the time of the of the. Uh, of the rise of the tabloid press. And in fact, the Daily Mirror, um, um, you read the afterwards, so you know this, but your listeners may not know this, that um, the Daily Mirror had been set up in 1905, specifically as a newspaper for women. That was, mm-hmm. so there was this uh, rising class of educated, educated middle-class women uh, who were very much behind the suffragettes, but interested, many interested, even if they weren't uh, suffragists, they were interested mm-hmm. in politics and, you know, so the, Daily Mirror was a paper designed to appeal to to them, looking for stories of women's interests. Didn't work as it happened. The, the paper had to do a kind of decided after a couple of years that it wasn't working, that there weren't enough women um, buying the paper, and so they they decided to take on the Daily Express. But but the 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 the, the impulse to to write these kind of um, stories that might appeal to women uh, survived and. And obviously, you know, these young women who are the most left wing and the uh, and the most strident and the ones that were calling for blood. I mean, the, the speech that I that, that, that I uh, quote there, that 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 was taken from a, um, a transcript by the, the, the Daily, the Daily Mirror. So these were quite, you know, outspoken. And I suppose at the time I was writing, I was also thinking, chuckling to myself, I was thinking about this was a debate going on in the Labour Party as well. You know, right. obviously not as dramatic as as the uh, as, as the Soviet conference, but it was that kind of: are we going to appeal to the centre, or are we going to go for something really radical? And that was, you know, obviously in a more kind of life and death kind of a way. That was animating the 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 mm. conference. Um, you know, the, the the Soviet Communist Party. You know, are we going to? you know, try and argue for socialism within the Duma? Or are we going to try and get some kind of just get get better conditions for the workers through mm-hmm. discussion and debate and voting? Or are we going to, you know, try and try and try and take over again? Are we going to kind of launch a revolution again? Um, and it and it was always interesting for me that the, that there was the these young women arguing for for violence and trying to be restrained by these older men, and it struck me mm. that that was also that that pattern is also often repeated in. If you think about the American Democratic Party, famously have these you know young women activists that are the right. driving force, and then you know Corbyn's Labour Party again. There was some you know London-based young women activists. So so it was it was quite fun to try and draw those parallels without ever spelling them out in the way that I just yeah. done. Fact, <laughs> and then of course the kind of the figurehead of sort of um, who befriends Elie Vuko and the um, the conference, Rosa Luxemburg. I I must admit, like because when I studied politics back in the day, uh, Luxemburg was really one of the I thought one of the most kind of compelling figures yeah, yeah. of sort of twentieth century um, sort of socialism or left left wing thought, and. Uh, I must admit, like I, I think you, I think you pull it off. But my, I saw that you, you know, you were writing about Stalin and you know, Lenin and Trotsky, and I, I didn't seem particularly sort of bothered by this. But when I saw you were going to write about Rosa Luxemburg, in a way, I don't know why. I think there was maybe something uh, about her, her, her image and her, her character, which is so fleshed out in yeah. her work, in a way yeah, yeah. that it felt sort of like a sort of. Oh, I kind of held my breath when uh, when she first appeared on the page. Yeah, no, how, how was it to write her? Uh, well, she is unlike oddly 
I think you've hit the nail on the head in a way because unlike Stalin, people aren't invested emotionally in Stalin. They're fascinated mm-hmm. by him, but they don't like him really. Although there right, is a, yeah. there, on the, on the internet, I did discover there is a kind of hot Stalin <laughs> subculture about you know based around <laughs> those photos of young Stalin, which I I didn't know about before I started writing. But that aside, niche interests aside, people aren't really invested in Stalin. They they want to know about him, but they don't love him. Um, mm. Same way with Lenin, they want to know about him, but they love him. Um, mm. Rosa Luxemburg, people love, um, yeah, yeah, because yeah. of you, you know. Um, uh, because of her writing, because of her work, because of you know the biography of her, because she was a woman, you know, not very many women, and um, and therefore you you know you did have perhaps still have to be better than all your male peers in order to get where mm-hmm. you you have to think faster, be more, um, be tougher. Um, so people love Rosa Luxemburg, and but uh, she was there. And if you didn't write about her, that would be a massive act of, of cowardice, right. I think. Also, that you, you, you'd left out the most vivid part of your, yeah. <laughs> part of your book. And obviously, I knew the biography, you know, I knew her. Um, she does, you know, she was uh, sexually liberated, sexually adventurous, um, you know, in, um, and was writing, um, you know, home to her lover at home, was trying to free herself of her long-term relationship. So all of that was going on. Um, and uh, and I also thought about what I know about conferences and is that friendships and relationships form quite fast, don't they? Yeah, yeah. During sure. that height. Yeah. You know, so then I was thinking, well, you know, you've got this young activist, Ellie Vuoco, who's making a Who's, who's making a splash? Of course, that's going to be of interest to Rosa Luxemburg. Of course, yeah. You know, at thirty-six, she's going to look at this nineteen-year-old and see elements of herself in that as well. So, of course, mm-hmm. it was entirely plausible that they would have this relationship, and you know, and 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 it enabled me to take the story away from some of the um, some of the blokes really and give it a different mm-hmm. kind of dynamic. And I'm glad you think I pulled it off. I mean, it was. <laughs> high, high risk but then uh, you know as you know novel is a high risk endeavor <laughs> indeed a high wire act a lot yeah, of the time yeah, absolutely, yeah. um and you touched on something there which i also kind of alluded to in the introduction which i'd like to speak about is this this idea about i guess it feels like a very dry way to put it but but kind of interpersonal relations i guess the kind of there's this weird sort of tension in history generally between like the great forces of history at work which are not connected to specific personalities and, you know, our sort of social movements and and these things which we which know what sort of one person particularly shapes or controls. But then also the undeniable reality that there are certain moments where small groups of people in closed rooms have an effect on history. And not only that, but like the way they interact with each other is also going to be important. So like, you know, mm. how they get along, how they converse, but also like if they if they fancy each other or if they mm. are kind of personally repulsed by each other or things like that. And I think that's one level on which this novel works really nicely is this kind of, uh, yeah, working on those two different levels, kind of showing the, you know, the in a sense, these are characters caught up in a certain sweep of history, but also the way that they're responding to each other on a kind of, emotional sometimes sexual level is then going to have a kind of ripple effect on on history itself yeah and and um and, and i think you can see that 
uh, you know, as it's the, the Conservative Party and it's been revealed as a as a party of like serial sexual <laughs> predators. But also that 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 clubby element is clearly that that slight gang element. The fact they all been to mm-hmm. the same schools and they all know each other and they've all been to the same parties and the same university colleges clearly influences them. Um, you look at the the relationship between Keir Starmer and Angela Rayner. Often speculated, it's a bit sparky. Or the relationship between Angela Rayner and Boris Johnson actually seems mm. to be a bit flirtatious, a bit sparky. Having it, um, and you're dead right. You know that these these things shouldn't have, or perhaps shouldn't have, uh, an influence. I mean, as Tony Benn always saying about you know it's about policy, not personality. And yet, personality affects policy, and personality mm-hmm. affects the way things are. Uh, presented and, and even the things that are, uh, are decided on, um, and uh, and there does seem to be a swing in history as we choose, uh, just as we choose a change government followed by a, a consolidation stable government or mm-hmm. a change leader and a and a boring leader, um, you know, right. followed by boring, you know, that that seems to be the pattern, um, and 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 those. Um, and who decides what's exciting and who's boring is, you know, is based around quite, um, you know, who's more convivial, who's more. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was some of that stuff in my book. I had to sort of, so I was trying to find, so um, Litvinov, who became an ambassador to London, Stalin's ambassador to London, takes a leading figure in in, in my book. Um, and I have him as a sort of life and soul figure. I could not for the life of me find out if he was really like that or not. Mm. Because the Soviet biographers weren't interested in that. It was just like what he'd done, where he'd been. And I eventually found uh, 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 a, a letter that somebody had written or a diary entry that said he'd taken part in some chir- in, in a game of charades at some mm-hmm. Christmas party. And then I'm thinking, well, <laughs> if he's volunteered for a game of charades, then he probably might be that kind of person. And that had to be enough for me to, to then spin a whole sort of... Uh, character out of that and i might have got that wrong but you know you 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 you, um uh whether or not uh someone is a is a hail fellow well met or a kind of brooding uh uh thinker like mikhail Mm -hmm. scott then you um you know does influence policy and it's uh you know and 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 it's an important bit of, of 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 the book really and yeah i do and again at conferences all that stuff is highly charged and telescoped in time isn't it you know things mm-hmm. uh somebody you know eyes meet across a crowded room but they're only there a few days and then they have a few drinks and then you know and then they sort of end up in bed or not and then you know and then go their separate ways everything's everything's compressed um mm-hmm. you know like a novel itself like this novel particularly which is all compressed into these three weeks so mm-hmm. um, yeah i had some fun with that so you, you mentioned earlier that the um, the one of the kind of significant plot points in the book that Stalin befriends a uh, a small boy, the the son of his mm. uh, his landlord in London, is based on um, on something that that actually happened. And one of the things that um, I found really fascinating actually was the kind of uh, in a way because the characters that we spend most of our time with are non English. It allows us to have a kind of reflection on English society uh, at the time, and I think consequently now, which is perhaps a little bit would have been a little bit more difficult if all of the um, all of the uh, the characters were kind of rooted in um, in that culture. But yet, 
this kind of little friendship is in a sense what allows Stalin to kind of tap into a lot of the um the sort of I guess the the extreme injustices which were which were mm. prevalent in uh, in English society uh, then and and I, I guess now. Yeah. Well, I mean, one, one thing. Yeah. So, I, um, so obviously the 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 suffering of that boy in my uh, in my book was that that triggers Stalin's. He's protective towards him because of his mm-hmm. his own appalling upbringing. So, um, I mean, I don't know. Maybe for the. Uh, um, uh, <laughs> the the, the real kid may have had a perfectly loving upbringing. I don't really know. I suspect, <laughs> I suspect not. But um, so so there's that. But he was very um, uh, Arthur Bacon. He's very um, when he did a he did an interview when Stalin died, which was you know the Stalin I knew kind of thing. And he was mm-hmm. even though he'd become a conservative, he was very uh, proud of his of his. It was obviously a defining moment of. Uh, of, of his of his own childhood, and he was very proud of the fact both that he that he'd formed this relationship with Joseph Stalin, but also had managed to swindle him you know, by running right. and, and <laughs> Stalin uh, for that. But what I was going to say is that what was quite interesting for me was the the difference in language because I was able to say well they're speaking Finnish now or Russian now or they, uh. they, they, that that allowed um, people to say things. You know, um, and not be understood. It also allowed me to have, um, you know, the, the 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 English people. English people now, I find, they hate. Not everyone, not even most people, but there is a group of people who hate hearing foreign languages on on English mm. street. Cannot take it. Um, and and so uh, and so, it was quite interesting to. To deal with some of that in this book, because obviously a lot of people are in the East End at this time. There's so many different languages uh, mm. on the street, and uh, and yes, it, it, it was a great way of of uh, so I've got foreign people who are speaking amongst themselves in their own languages, and they are able to speak English. But the English people can't join, so it's like they've got you know they've got a, like a superpower, which is the fact that mm-hmm. they can um, they they can do this. Stalin, of course, didn't speak English that well, so. Uh, you know, so he was a bit, again, a bit of an outsider amongst outsiders. But it's also a way of, you know, looking at the English society then, but mm-hmm. also as a sort of shadow figure behind looking at English society now. Yeah, and you're quite right. Yeah. That again, <laughs> one um, one one line seems to sort of encapsulate that although i haven't in my notes written down who it was attributed to so maybe you'll remember if somebody at the moment says a very paranoid race the english worse than the russians even if only they knew how little we care about them how little thought we give them which yeah, feels particularly be pertinent to the last few years things, so yeah okay yeah. there you go <laughs> yeah and i think that there's a that's summed some up quite a lot of, um when i talk to people who live in europe about you know about the the Brexit debates, people were saying, well, mm. look, you know, I remember hearing quite a few times, we're over it, we've done, you've yeah, left, yeah, you're yeah, out, yeah. we don't care about you anymore, we, you know, the world moves on, you know, okay, so you've, you've walked out the door, but you, you know, your debates about it, your, that, that's of limited interest to us now, so, mm-hmm. you know, so it was an attempt to engage with that, and I think one of the things in writing a historical novel, and maybe you'll find this too, Adam, when you, when you inevitably write one, because, <laughs> Is is that uh, um, is that you 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 your own practice gets liberated by the sudden uh-huh. the, the the realization that you can that you that you can deal with your own obsessions 
but in new uh, ways and in new yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. that you've got a whole new palette to deal with um, uh, and to use. Um, it's like um, I'm curious. There's, there's so much more I'd like to speak about, but we are running out of time. So where I'd like to finish is with this idea of, I guess, because you said at the beginning it was your first kind of um, sort of uh, uh, dive into historical fiction. And, and you know, and we've expressed throughout the interview with, you know, the, all of the caveats that this is not sort of, you know, these are not, these are your Stalin, if you like, your Rosa yeah. Luxemburg. These are not yeah. necessarily yeah. supposed to be kind of historically accurate. But I'm curious about how your relationship to these historical personages has changed in the writing of this novel? Like, have you come to a different understanding of Stalin, of Rosa Luxemburg, of some of the other figures because of this kind of artistic and emotional attempt to engage with their with their characters and their lives? Well, I suppose I was always motivated by the idea that the, 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 the monsters, if you like, are, you know, created over time um, and not, you know, mm. um, and there's a you know might be a genetic component there might be a childhood component but it's but you know it's man handing on misery to man you know and it builds up like a coastal shelf it builds up over over time i was interested in bringing some people that were in the shadows um more central stage if you like i was interested in the idea that just like uh um that, that, that actually history is a cast of people um most of whom get forgotten but um mm-hmm. And but you know people fit into a society, a a group. So in interested in all of that. I don't think I think. Um, so I had always always assumed that Stalin became Stalin. He wasn't born uh, that way. I think I was. What did change is 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 a deeper understanding of just how many people are in the shadows, mm. and you know, and how many mm. chance encounters have bigger effects and the random nature of sort of history selects this person you know when we when we try and make sense of the past we have to we have to lose so much and that there's a sort of randomness to that you know we remember this person because he did this very newsworthy thing we forget these 10 other people because they never mm-hmm. you know for whatever reason didn't yeah yeah, yeah. The that feels Feels like a very good uh, point on which to uh, to leave it. Give our listeners something to reflect upon uh, mm-hmm. as they as as they go away. Um, Sell us the rope is of course available from Shakespeare and Company, from our bricks and mortar store, from our uh, online store as well. You'll find a link in the in the show notes to that, or from of course your local independent bookstore, wherever wherever that may be. Uh, all that remains for me to say is Stephen May. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Adam. Thank you. It's great. Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app, or just by sending the link to some of your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple or Patreon for just three euros a month. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by our resident jazz supremo, Alex Fryman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. I'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening. <laughs>